evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 102 of the Retrospectors podcast, Homework. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, James Sterlings. James, it's been a hell of a long time since we've last done an RTS game, with our last one being almost two years ago with Dawn of War. It's kind of a shame in some way, because I've always loved RTS games, uh, Red Alert, Dark Reign, uh, Starcraft, which I you know, have more got into recently. Um, even some of the more offbeat ones. Um, I loved Supreme Commander. And I used to play all these games casually with uh, with friends and play the single-player games. But unfortunately, they tend to be a bit longer, which makes them harder to do for the show. But I'm glad that we're finally returning to RTS games because I, I love the genre a bit. Yeah, as a kid, I feel like I played a fair bit. Like I played Rise of Nations a lot and, Rise of, and uh, Age of Mythology a lot, both it and the expansion and then, oh, and of course, Warcraft 3, you could forget. And then I kind of just, like, veered away from it, I think. But for all of my experience with these classic RTS games, I have to say there's one that I've never played before, and that is the game we're doing for this episode, Homeworld. Have you ever played this one before, James, or have you at least heard of it? Yeah, of course I had. When I was a kid, I saw this game uh, on the wall, on the shelf, uh, everywhere, all the time. Um, I never got it myself. I just looked at the back of the box, you know, back when games came in these giant boxes that were ridiculously huge now that I think about it for how little the CD was, man. Um, but no, I never played it myself back then. I actually had no idea that it was uh, in fully in 3D until we, you know, played it. <laughs> yeah, Homeworld being a fully 3D space RTS is only one of the things that sets it apart. Yes. <laughs> I mean, back in the day, all of these RTS games, 3D or no, they had, you know, they have a lot of common features, whether you're playing StarCraft or Command & Conquer or the fantasy RTSs, um, Age of Mythology, Age of Empires, whatever it is. They've got a fixed camera, you're building bases, you're building armies. Homeworld is doing something radically different in so many different ways. I think that even if you and I decide this game is not worth your time and, you know, jury is still out on what the case will be, you cannot deny the uniqueness of what Homeworld has to offer. And really, even today, there's probably nothing out there really like it. I'm sure there are some modern uh, versions that have been inspired by this, but we're a long way from what mainstream RTSs are. Yeah, it certainly has a lot of merits, and I think there are a few notably rough edges, some extremely rough edges that probably are going to uh raised their heads a few times throughout this episode but man it was very fascinating that's for sure hmm. it is funny isn't it sometimes those rough edges are enough to kill a game other times those rough edges end up being exactly why we like the games that we play for the show and for those who have never heard of us before this is what we do on the retrospectors podcast we play classic games of the past whether they be widely beloved or of the cult variety with the intention of examining these games from a modern perspective we're not interested in how good these games were at the time when they were released. We don't want to look at these in the context of the times in which they were released. We're reviewing it from today's perspective and evaluating how good they are when you compare them shoulder to shoulder with games of the past. And while it's interesting to just take off the nostalgia goggles and sometimes tear a game to shreds, the other half of the show, which in many ways is more interesting, is examining when these games do genuinely hold up, sometimes precisely because of their supposedly outdated design principles. And if this all sounds like a cup of tea, you can check out our website, rspodcast.net. 
It's got links to all of our episodes, over 100 of them now, as well as a bunch of articles that James and I have written. More importantly, it's got links to our social media stuff, the most important of which is our Discord server. That's where we do most of our interaction with our community, take suggestions, that kind of thing. And if you really want to support us, you can check out our Buy Me A Coffee page. And so for episode 102, of course, we're doing Homeworld. But before we get into the meat of the discussion, it's worth talking a little bit about how and why we chose to play the way we did. Yes, and this is where I'm going to get Patrick to defend his choice of game, uh, because we went with the original title that is bereft of many of the quality of life improvements that the remaster has. Why exactly did we play this version, Pat? It's honestly a very good question, and it was a difficult decision. I think that when deciding what version is best to play, this is actually one of the closer ones that we've done. It's nothing like uh, Silent Hill 2 versus Silent Hill 2 Remaster, for example. In the end, I did end up going for the original, mainly because I think that with the remaster, they corrupted a lot of the essential gameplay of the game, not even intentionally, but because of the engine the remaster was made in. So to cut a long story short, when they did the remaster of Homeworld 1 and 2, they did it as a package, and they remastered Homeworld 1 and 2 in the Homeworld 2 engine. And this led to some pretty funky stuff happening uh, in the Homeworld 1 uh, remaster, because the Homeworld 2 remaster was based off the Homeworld 2 engine, and they made a number of significant gameplay changes. I'm not going to be exhaustive here, but to give a couple of examples, they changed how formations worked and they changed how strike aircraft worked. So the smaller strike aircraft that are individually simulated individual units in Homeworld 1 uh, were changed into squads of fighters in Homeworld 2. And so with the remaster, they made the fighter units a squad of units, but that isn't quite how Homeworld 1 works or was intended to work. And so it leads to a bunch of unintended behaviors. There are many such examples like this, and not much of it is game breaking, but I felt that because James and I both care about gameplay a lot, it would be better to experience the original authentic version of what Homeworld's gameplay has to offer. Now, on the other hand, the new game, the remastered game, is far prettier and it has a much more revamped and user-friendly user interface in many ways, even though the original user interface is no slouch. And that's to say nothing of things like the adaptive difficulty. So I think that it is close. I think that if you're a casual gamer, there's no reason you can't play the remaster and get an experience kind of similar to the original. But I think that playing the original game will give you the most authentic gameplay experience that Homeworld is aiming for. And that's something that James and I care about a lot. Yeah, I also did a bit of research into this, you know, today and after finishing the game myself. And I have to agree that I'm kind of glad we did the original. One of the things they seem to have added or at least even, you know, expanded upon in the remaster is adaptive difficulty, which apparently makes some of the later missions like close to impossible because in homeworld you have a uh, a set of units that you carry with you from mission to mission right you never reset um what you end a mission with is what you start the next one with and if you make a gigantic army very early on the ai will get like 
dozens and dozens and dozens of bonus ships to the point where it makes like some of the missions impossible. I saw lots of recommendations online that you're supposed to not build until the start of a mission, just so you can trick the AI into not like making it unfairly difficult. So that broken ships, weird interactions, just I, I think if you want to play this, you probably are better off playing the original unless you think that the quality of life uh, improvements outweigh, you know, the gameplay benefits, which, you know, there might be an argument for that, but I, I haven't played the remaster basically, so it's hard to know. Yeah, and obviously I haven't played the remaster either, but for another example, I know that the game will auto-gather your resources at the end instead of you having to manually spend years waiting for your ships to gather them. Yeah, so it seems like what it ultimately comes down to is whether you value the increased and more beautiful spectacle of the remasters or whether you care more about the gameplay. And for James and I, it was always ultimately going to be the gameplay. Yeah, I think we'll debate this a bit more later on. I think there is an argument to be had that the gameplay in this game maybe isn't you know good enough to salvage in this way, but you know we'll get to that, right? I don't think it's a I don't think it's a hard yes or no either way. Yeah, but but even if we did have some issues, James, and from what I've heard, it certainly sounds like we both had some serious issues. I think it was worth playing this one just mm. so we could get a better understanding of what the original vi vision of the video game was instead of what was essentially a recreation of the game in a different engine. That being said, when we uh when we first tried to load up the game for the first time it did have one major problem oh yes it didn't work <laughs> yeah so when you first try to play homeworld on a windows pc now you'll run into the minor bug of your game crashing whenever a ship dies and unfortunately for you this is not the kind of game that you can play pacifist a lot of ships are going to die on a lot of sides Luckily, there is a mod called Splendor that pretty much gets the game working near perfectly, uh, aside from one or two minor bugs. It does make you reset the game and change the resolution every time you launch it. But for the most part, the game ran flawlessly for me. So we'll put a link to this in the show notes, but definitely don't leave home without installing the Splendor mod. Yeah, I don't think the game's basically playable on modern systems without it. So with that, James, I think it's time for us to start talking about Homeworld. So when it comes to the structure of this episode, we're going to do it a bit differently. Normally we segment our discussion into story, level design, you know, weapons, etc, etc. This time we're going to jump around a little bit. So I'm going to spend some time giving a very brief introduction to the story premise of Homeworld, spoiler free. Then we're going to explain to you guys a little bit of how Homeworld functions. This isn't just another RTS, this is a unique UI and setup. And I think it's a good idea to give you an idea of the kind of game we're talking about on a baseline level. Then we're going to return to story for our full spoiler discussion. So going into all the bits and pieces of what we think works about the story and what doesn't before finishing with gameplay. And here we'll do a very deep dive on both the macro and micro strategy of Homeworld. So without any further ado, let's jump into it. The game starts off with you in control of the Kushan Exiles of the planet Karak. The Kushan have lived on Karak for the past 3,000 years, and what was once just a barren planet would soon become a dead one. A hundred years or so before the events of the game, the Kushan discovered a massive dilapidated carrier. 
which was proof that Carrick was not their homeworld. With their planet on the way out, the Kushan decided to put aside their tribal differences and bind together to reverse engineer this technology so that they could escape and finally return home. And their plan to return home was centered around the creation of a mothership. This mothership would be embedded with hyperspace technology so that they could jump by jump, get closer and closer to their original homeworld. But it was also a colony ship with tens of thousands of people to be loaded into this ship so that new life could be created when they finally did get to their homeworld. You got to remember that planet is on the way out. It's going to be a dead world soon, incapable of supporting life. So this, in a lot of ways, is their last gambit. Although, to be fair, there have been people who have been living in kind of sketchier conditions for a long time. And let me tell you, this mothership is massive. Yeah, I mean, if you think about how big it is, like, if you think of, like, a Star Destroyer in Star Wars, like, those things dock inside this thing. It's so big that uh, in the manual that uh, comes with the game that I highly recommend you read, it's like... 44 pages of uh, background law goodness. They say that the dry dock can be spotted from the surface of the planet. This is all to say that this is no small project. It is the culmination of generations worth of work. And that is the basic setup for Homeworld. On the eve of your first mission, you're sitting there with your small fleet of ships and your mothership, and you're all ready to go on your hyperspace journey. What could possibly go wrong? And we will return to story in a second, but before we go any deeper on it, I think it's time to talk a little bit about what Homeworld is and how it functions as an RTS. I think the main thing to understand about Homeworld is that it is fully in three dimensions, right? You are in space, you are controlling spaceships, and they have actual 3D movement. This isn't a space game where everything is on a 2D plane and you just move it around like it's a traditional RTS. No. You need to control your camera in all, you know, every axis of motion. And they've gone for, honestly, I don't know how else you would do it, right? So in a traditional RTS, your camera is, you know, top down and you move it by edge panning or, you know, pressing a button and dragging the map around, right? Because you can move up in levels and spin in all directions, the game's camera must at all times be centered on a unit. You cannot unlink the camera from a unit in this game. So for example, you have a fighter ship and your camera will be centered on this fighter. And if you drag the mouse around, you can spin the camera in every single direction around uh, the fighter. And then you can select another unit and press the F key and it will move the camera's, you know, point of focus to this other ship. And you kind of, you know, move around the map by opening up the larger, you know, uh, galaxy-wide view, commanding a ship to go in that direction, um, and you can like box select because the 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 big map. There's two maps, right? There's the you can see your ships on the screen, and then you can zoom out for a galaxy-wide view where even your biggest ship is just a tiny green dot on the map. Um, and you can have groups of ships all over the you know this gigantic play space. Um, and you quickly cycle between them by drag selecting the little green dots, and then the game will zoom in, you know, on those ships. So getting to grips with this control scheme is a large part, you know, of the tutorial and the first few missions. 
it didn't take me too long to get my head around it, but I haven't quite played a game that, you know, really truly is 3D in space like this with multiple unit selection. Yeah, it's certainly very weird to get a hang of as at first because it's so different from your typical fixed camera angle with edge scrolling RTS that you normally do. This focus around units is very weird and unusual. Uh, as I was playing it, I was reminded a little bit of Total Total Annihilation sequel, Supreme Commander, which just gives you unlimited zoom. But really there's no there's no other way to do this except the way it's done in this game if you gave players a true free camera you'd be spinning around aimlessly and if you tried to have a fixed camera like a typical rts on a 2d plane you wouldn't be able to get the 3d elevation changes that are very important in this game but i do wonder james do you think this game is really true 3d like they actually want you to be able to attack and move from any angle or do you think it's still kind of fixed to a 2d plane because i always felt as though the mothership was a point of orientation for me. yeah it is because your mothership can't move um and is fixed in place i think the key thing is that zoomed out view that way you can like keep stock of where everything is in relation to each other um i think changing height is a bit awkward because you basically like when you when you go to move a unit um a flat circle will appear around it and if you move the mouse it will you know move on the same plane without going up and down you then press the shift button and now your mouse starts moving up and down and it is fixed in place you know on the the x and the z the y-axis basically and then the ship will fly on that weird angle um i had some bugs with this control scheme i found that if like maybe every other or one in three times it bugged out a bit and i had to like exit the movement selection and go back in and then it would work uh it was a bit janky for the most part it worked fairly well and by the end of the game i felt like pretty comfortable rapidly moving things around even though ship speed's not super fast which i think gives you time to fiddle with the you know the 3d controls which are a lot more complex than you know your traditional 2d orientation it does make me wonder if maybe homeworld didn't go far enough with this like it shouldn't have had this orientation point as a flat line you do have a thing where you can change ships out elevation but it's always a rise or a decrease over time instead of being able to point them in any direction but it's possible if they'd done that it would have ended up being a confusing mess and this slightly more restrictive plane-based 3D was necessary to have a sense of balance and understanding in these space battles. So the second thing to understand about the macro structure of Homeworld and understanding how it plays is that this is a continuous campaign. Most RTS games will have you reset to a baseline at the beginning of every mission. You might have some bonus units or you might have a thing where you have a different squad of units, but at some stage you're going to be like, okay, here's a basic base. You need to build up your forces and go kill the enemies. Homeworld does it very differently. Whatever forces you have at the end of a mission are the forces you will carry over with you at the beginning of the next mission. This also applies to whatever resources you've collected and whatever your current research level is. 
it's constantly building. And I think that the reason for this is kind of obvious. They wanted to tell, Relic wanted to tell this story of this ship struggling to get home in adverse conditions with everything against them. And therefore, it made sense for the narrative for you to have a constantly building army. If your army reset to just nothing every single time, the story it was trying to tell just wouldn't make sense. It's funny, we, uh, we just not long ago played Pathologic 2, which was a very clear example of the narrative being in service of the gameplay. Here we have the opposite. Here the gameplay is in service of the narrative. They wrote this story and then wanted to build the gameplay around it. And uh, while you might say that this has led to some gameplay problems, it has led to a very interesting kind of mission structure that you don't really see in other RTS games. Yeah, so I guess most missions are fairly different from one another. There's very rarely um, a mission that repeats in this game I found. I found there was like a lot of different missions. So it's, it's hard to, there's a 16 in total and it's hard to... I guess say this is generally what you'll be doing but normally it's a mixture of space combat resource gathering and then you know a fair amount of exploration gimmicky stuff on the side as well so this is all to say that this is still an rts game at heart it's a weird rts game it's an rts game with a pause function although it doesn't really uh work in the way you might hope but it is still a real-time strategy game, no matter how weird it is as an RTS game. So now that you guys have a basic idea of what the game is like on a baseline level, I think it's time for us to return to that story. So full spoilers, obviously, if you really don't want any spoilers for Homeworld, and to be fair, the story is an important part of this RTS, unlike some uh, RTS games out there, I encourage you to uh, either play the game yourself or just skip ahead 30 minutes uh, where we'll get into the gameplay discussion. So as I said before, the game takes place on the eve of your first hyperspace jump. So you're sitting above Kadesh, and before you do your jump, you just do a basic of training exercises effectively. And this is here to just familiarize yourself with the controls. You go to your jump and you go through space with your ships. And believe it or not, everything is fine. You're this, the hyperspace jump goes 100% successfully. You jump to the outer edge of your system exactly as you'd hoped. Unfortunately, you were meant to meet a ship out there. See, the planet of Kadesh, sorry, the people of Kadesh had sent a transport ship, like a long-distance ship, uh, 12 years ago to meet you at this point to assist with resupply or to provide any support that your ship needed. Unfortunately for you, as I said, that ship is nowhere to be found. After you send out a probe, you discover the, the wreck of that long distance ship. It has been attacked and destroyed. And as you are trying to recover its remains, you get attacked by these evil looking ships, uh, Tidan fighters. Worried that these, these fighters could be coming to your home planet at any time, you decide to return immediately so that you can communicate to your home planet, hey, these Tidan fighters are on the way, they've destroyed our long distance ship. We need to be careful and start building defenses. So after fighting off the fighters that are left, you jump in your ship and you hyperspace back home. But unfortunately, there's a problem. The planet is burning. 
In the time that you're doing your hyperspace jump, the Tidan have launched an assault on the planet. The whole planet is ablaze. It's like turned into a firestorm. And the dry dock where your ship was created has also been destroyed. The only thing that's left are the massive cryogenic pods, which house thousands and thousands of your frozen people. So all that's left are the people who are on the mothership, people in these pods, and you have nothing left to do except pursue your dream of trying to find the mother world. Man, honestly, this setup I found so gut-wrenching. It's like your entire cheese is gone and all that's left is the people on this mothership and you don't even know like if your mission's going to be successful or like, you know, what if you run out of fuel or something weird like that? I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? Uh, the absolute anxiety these people must be feeling on this ship it's insane you're completely right james it is gut-wrenching it is terrible and it's a really really strong start and a strong premise to launch a video game i do think however there are some potential issues here with the presentation of this tragedy so one of our favorite RTSs of all time is Warcraft 3. And one of the things that Warcraft 3 does is that it has an immense amount of characterization. This was a rarity back in 1999, like characterization even in the old Command and Conquer and even StarCraft was at a far lower level than what Warcraft 3 eventually brought to the fold. But Homeworld has basically no characterization. There's one. Well, yeah, yeah, one. But but it's not really... It's basically nothing. The people in the Homeworld fleet, whether they be diplomats, soldiers, or unnamed commanders, are all completely professional at all times. James, do you think this was a problem uh, when it comes to your emotional investment in this story or do you think it worked just fine yeah it's strange because basically the only character in the gameplay is Sajet, who is this the woman who originally i believe proposed the the the, the adventure yeah so Sajet is the one who she was the neuroscientist who came up with the idea of embedding a human being inside the mothership because that ai technology wasn't at a stage where the ai by itself could run all those executive functions but by the same token a human couldn't do it either with all of the bureaucracy that it would entail so she proposed this idea of having a human being fused with the mothership to control it directly and she said that the only way i'm going to let this happen if i'm the volunteer and i'm the one who gets fused to this piece of technology yes and they were successful right so she is your ship's computer and you know both the voice acting and her dialogue is very stiff and i think it's a you know, supposed to be on purpose, right? This character is now part machine. Um, and she is basically, you know, one of two people that talk. The other, I think, is an unnamed male general, basically. It just says what's going on in the mission. I don't know who they are or, you know, they don't say how they feel about things. No, you only have, like, Sajet's, like, robotic-ish reaction to our planet is burning. That's it, right? Like... Yeah, it's strange because, like, I, you know, that scene really hit for me. Uh, I felt that, like, you know, the pain of these this people who you don't even, I don't we think we even see pictures of what this race looks like. Um, it's very hands-off, which is quite bizarre. But 
I sort of think it works in the game's favor almost. Yeah, it's very understated. Yeah, it lets you kind of like think about what the people are feeling like. That that should be obvious to you. Like their their planet was destroyed. Like that's terrible, right? Yeah, I see what you're getting at. When you use your imagination, you can fill in the gaps better than before. And I do think that there was always a danger of the melodrama being poorly done and them not being able to properly realize the anguish. So in yeah. some ways it was far easier to just leave it to your imagination. But at the same time, I just feel like we didn't really get the full insight into how this would devastate these people, the emotional torture that it would have caused them. The only subtle hint that, well, I say subtle hint, but the only kind of uh, indication we get is this little bit where they're telling about how they interrogated a captured Tidane pilot. And right at the end, in a monotone, they say the pilot did not survive the interrogation. And I mean, the moment they said that, I'm like, of course he didn't survive the interrogation. No, of course not. These people would have taken it out on this one remaining Tidane fighter. But for the most part, we don't really get that. We don't get the full impacts of what losing that many people would do to this people. And I think that that does, to me, undersell the tragedy of the situation. And it goes with understating it a little bit too far. So the thing that really stood out for me about the story is that I loved the story and lore that's contained within the manual, which is about a deeply tribal and religious society at each other's throats that ends up banding together, realizing the value of, I guess, rationalism and scientific progress and harmony and, I guess, cultural cohesion, putting aside their differences and culturally evolving to a better place. And while this is a good thing, and while I think that it's a fantastic thing that a society has basically reached uh, galactic level travel and evolved from those origins, it did bother me a little bit that we've kind of lost their culture in a whole bunch of ways outside of the architecture of their ships and some of the music. And as a reference point of something that does as well, we're going to turn to Deep Space Nine. So without getting into too much detail, Deep Space Nine has a race that's kind of the center of the series called the Bajorans. And the Bajorans are in some ways like the Kadesh. They have been in horrible circumstances. They banded together. They embrace scientific rationalism. And they are an enlightened, forward-thinking species that wants to join the Federation, with the Federation here being the stand-in for scientific enlightenment, if you will. However, the thing about the Bajorans is that they still maintain their culture very, very strongly in their attire in their beliefs. And in fact, many of the episodes of D Space Nine are on the clash between their religion and their culture and this progressive future that the Federation is espousing and what the Federation believes. And I think that there was a missed opportunity here. If, if we can't get the individual characters in detail, which is kind of fine, like it's okay to leave that to their imagination. I think a lot more could have been done to get the cultural aesthetic of things like the tribes uh, into, into Homeworld. Like, for example, you could have had different uh, tribes specializing in different areas and them being noticeably culturally different in their interactions with one another. 
Yeah, so it, in some ways it was just a little disappointing because I was kind of promised this rich cultural background by the manual. And when we last did Archimedean Dynasty, which is a similar game with fantastic world building that was carried by the manual, we got a lot more of that world building and culture in the video game. And I just wish that there was more of that stuff in the video game. Yeah, the game's story is really carried hard by its premise, which is absolutely to me this story is you know a loose book of exodus story right like you have this people on this dune world that find the stone tablet that tell them to go to the holy promised land and they're you know doggedly pursued by this oppressive empire and that that kind of story i think just resonates like really strongly with people you know there's a reason those stories survive so long in human history it's just you know, this story of oppression and escape is just something very relatable and understandable. So I think they can get away with it being very understated and not filling in too many of the details. Like, this isn't a mystery. You don't need every single thing spelled out to you. But I think some better world building during the game would have gone a long way, especially during those more mundane boring segments of flying through space and it's funny you say you talk about investment because i think the idea that your ships carry over from mission to mission makes it easier to make like your fleet feel like your fleet rather than just a fleet the mission gives you from turn to turn so i was like kind of sad when this you know really powerful ship i mind controlled a few missions ago finally got destroyed which was great um but yeah characterization just lets it down and i think all the plot near the end of the story is just like very rushed and not fleshed out anywhere near enough particularly when we're dealing with the actual empire themselves we get like two cutscenes that are very brief involving the emperor who is the final you know big bad at the end of the game and he just kind of like dies and doesn't say anything. It's really strange. I found everything to do with the villains and the evil empire or whatever to be very lacking. Like where the manual has pages and pages of information about the main character races, these guys just get nothing. They're just the evil guys trying to kill you. And that's, you know, maybe you can dig through the cutscenes with a fine tooth comb to find a bit more than that but it really kind of you know fizzles out at the end for me while um while the empire of ty dash do come across as mustache twirling villains i do quite like the simplicity of your story while there is still a whole bunch of other stuff going in in the background so you are just trying to get home and there are a lot of obstacles in your way but i think that the focus of that journey does a lot to keep the narrative i guess grounded and focused and keep the pacing going well and i do like the idea of you basically leaving home triggering an intergalactic war because there are a lot of factions that are kind of watching what's happened with the kaidash firebombing karak closely and it seems like that action was considered over the line for a lot of different groups and so as you're moving through the galaxy trying to reach home there's like a massive rebellion going on in the background and there are people helping you and trying to politically salvage the situation so i did i did like the the structure and focus of the story it's more the um 
the characterization and culture which i felt was lacking the the people of kadesh end up being a little bland when i think that there was no reason for them to be that way really the best parts of the narrative to me were gardens of kadesh and the ghost ship which i thought was some a nice little bit of world building um that was kind of you know just there it's just this fun thing you found in space um because Gardens of Kadesh has a really interesting premise, right? Like your ship is flying through this nebula, but, you know, people have told you that ships go missing in here. You know, it's like space's Bermuda Triangle. Um, and, you know, you get accosted by these, like, gravity wells that stop you from going back into hyperspace. And this race of people approaches you and says join us or die and then they notice that you've been harvesting the space dust for resources and it turns out these people worship the nebula right and they hate that they're like they're really angry so they start trying to kill you um and then over the course of the missions you get this information that's it's kind of weird it's like their ship reactors and their ships give off the same energy signatures as your own um, and as the missions progress, you, you know, you come across the truth. This, these people are actually the same race as you, um, but they split off from you like 3,000 years ago when the original exodus happened. Um, and they've been living here, taking out other ships as resources ever since, basically. And, you, you know, you've got to destroy them because they are deathly terrified that if they let anyone go, Tidan will find them and they'll be destroyed. Um, which is, you, you know, pretty... They definitely will destroy you, right? Like, they destroyed your whole planet. It's a very real threat. <laughs> yeah, the Gardens of Kadesh missions are great, particularly the bridge between, uh, I think it's missions five and six. Yeah. Because, you know, the idea is that these people have put up a hyperspace inhibitor. You destroy it, and you're all good to go. So you go to jump again, and then you immediately <clears throat> land into a trap and you're stuck between three hyperspace inhibitors and a hell of an enemy fleet. And naturally, I died several times trying to figure out the best way to actually combat this trap. But it was a wonderful narrative moment, that moment of getting got and being surprised. All right, well, we're 40 minutes in, so we should probably do a music break by now. Um, I actually think the music in this game's quite good. I thought the, you know, the presentation and the tone, like... There are some parts of the game where everything works together. I'm like, I love this game. One of the things is that the the music has this real sense of tension to the combat, right? There are these times where you're you see like two massive fleets of ships just closing in on each other, and the music just swells and the vocals they give off this feeling of anxiety. You know, it's uncertain, right? Like your ships, these are the last of your people. Um, you know, the people in these fighter planes, like if they fail, their entire race could be wiped out. And just the way the ships slowly careen towards each other while the music swells is just awesome. Um, after a while, that wears off a bit and you're like, man, I wish the gameplay was a bit faster. But first few times, absolutely mint. I really liked this game's soundtrack. Yeah, so soundtrack, a lot of it is ambient droning. So you're very predispositioned towards it, right? <laughs> so uh, I, I did love the ambient droning. And when I listen, to, listen back to this today, I will say that it's not the kind of soundtrack where I would hear 15 seconds of a clip and go, oh, I know, that matches this moment in the game exactly. It's, it's not that kind of game and it's not that kind of soundtrack. 
What I will say is that the soundtrack incredibly and beautifully captures the majesty, expanse, and mysteriousness of space. All of the ambient tracks just beautifully capture the tone, and playing this game without the soundtrack would be a crime against humanity because so much of your time is spent waiting. You should at least have something rounding out that uh, that dead, dead space. The um, The battle themes are also very good, and in fact, I think that the battle themes are some of the best places for the culture of the Kadesh to actually come through in this game. And I really do like that, that they're tied more to when you when things get rough and you get some more tribal drums, because it does do a little bit to bring them identity. But most of the music is ambient droning, and, and that's the way it should be. Yeah, so let's go with the Imperial battle theme. This was by far my favorite. I think the vocal parts of this track, when your ships are crashing into each other, is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I just loved it a bit, so here we go. Alrighty, that was the best battle theme in the game. Um, is it time to talk a bit about the gameplay, Pat? Both the uh, good and the absolutely, not so James. Good? And I think that the place we need to start is the main macro strategic drive in Homeworld, which is that you can keep ships in between missions. You accumulate resources, and then you can keep them in between missions. And the main way that you do this is with the glorious salvage ships. Man, the salvage drones are quite possibly the most and least fun part of this game simultaneously. It's very strange. Um, so this game is very snowbally. Um, so much so that the, as we discussed before, the remaster adds in some crazy difficulty scaling. Um, but it really does feel like you can get screwed out of your campaign at times. I was actually very concerned that I would have to restart the game from scratch a few times uh, early on into the missions because I wasn't very good at keeping my ships alive to begin with. Um, and as you go on and you get better, the game stops being able to keep up with you to some degree. Um, and I think this is in large part due to the salvage drones, which are little ships that you can order to attack an enemy ship. And they will, if you attack a small ship, two of your drones will attach to the side 
and then they will bring that ship back to your mothership um, and then about a minute later that ship will be processed and become your ship forever um, and you can basically steal like every ship in the game if you are so inclined these salvage drones don't have a lot of hp so there is a bit of trick to keeping them alive but once you become good at it like i did it starts feeling like you're a fucking idiot if you don't start capturing ships. Um, and the thing is, these things are even reusable. It's not like there's some constant resource expenditure to attempt to capture enemy ships. They're not even like the Yuri's in Red Alert 2. It's literally you build the salvage drones once, mm. and as long as you can keep them alive, you can continuously use those same salvage ships to salvage and salvage and salvage that basically effective value goes up the longer you can keep them alive. And the strategy to use them and not lose them isn't even that crazy complicated once you've, you know, got a decent uh, defense line. And this is what I did anyway. I would just send in some fighter ships to distract the enemy. And while they were targeting those, my salvage drones would swoop in and grab whatever remained. Yeah, so I think... It's probably, like, I think it's fun to steal other ships, especially at first. Um, I think that you should not combine this with a mission structure like this game has, probably. It's a bit rough um, trying to balance the game together, you know, having both. I think, I think you either don't use the salvage drones enough and you fall massively behind or you realize you can use them constantly and you massively you know get ahead of the curve and the game becomes a joke effectively using salvage drones and using them frequently is the optimal strategy in this game and i feel like there's a degree of you feeling compelled to use them and follow this strategy just because of how critical it is to accumulate ships you are on a desperate journey for survival to try and reach home you do not know what's coming in the next mission or sometimes you do know and you need to be best prepared and the best way to be prepared is to salvage enemy ships to bulk your effective ship count because that way you're not limited by resources and you're not limited by research as soon as I figured out the strength of salvage drones, that is what I was primarily doing and kind of my entire strategy ultimately always revolved around it. Yeah, I did not use them that much until maybe the Gardens of Kadesh mission where you can steal these like insane little ships that have four laser beams on them that like absolutely tear through bigger ships like i was like looking through forums like after playing it and everyone seems to agree that those multi-beam frigate like those multi-beam frigates are just insane and if you can get a bunch of them like it's really good um after that it kind of dawned on me how just insane these like salvage like stealing ships is and the game like the fun i was having like dropped off a cliff basically because I think the biggest problem is that salvaging large numbers of ships is quite tedious, but you feel stupid for not doing it, so you kind of get trapped into this really unfun gameplay pattern, because at least for me, this game's really hard. Like, I found the first, like, eight missions, I had to make lots of saves, and I had to reload many, many times. Cause yeah, that's because you're experimenting with everything. Yeah, you don't know what's good. So yeah, In those early missions, I was getting destroyed, particularly so you, those Kadesh yeah. missions. Like, 
I didn't stand a chance and I, I what I would do is I'd build some ships and it wouldn't work and I'd try different compositions and it wouldn't work. And for the record, all of that was completely fine and enjoyable, that experimentation and trying to figure out what actually was an effective composition of ships and what their best roles were. The thing is, these missions have no chill at all. You'll start a mission and you'll get attacked by like a gigantic fleet within like 20 seconds of the mission starting and your fleet will be decimated and you'll reload and you'll do a bit better and then you'll reload and you'll do a bit better. I was really struggling. The game's really difficult. And what I'm trying to get at is that's fine. I was happy to do that. The issue becomes then that once you discover how good salvaging is, you kind of, because the, uh, like the first few missions are so hard, like me as a, like someone who needs to finish this game in a couple of weeks to review it for this show, right? I had this like fear in the back of my mind that I would not be able to finish the game because it would be too hard. I don't know how hard the, like the missions coming up are going to be. So when I learned that I have this option to make, like get ahead of the curve by salvaging using the ships, I'm like, I have to do this because what if I don't do this and the next mission's so hard I have to start the game again, right? And I've just lost like, you know, like 12 hours of my life. Yeah, the, the problem is that you feel compelled yes. to use salvage drones. Uh, it's far and away the best thing that you can possibly do, be doing. So you feel like an idiot for not doing it. So you end up doing it no matter how painful that process is. Yeah, so some of the missions, you know, you just, you spend so long doing this tedious busy work because it's like, it's very, you know, by the numbers, it's like I send one scout to get this ship's attention and then I lead it back to my, you know, my big base, which then I send the salvage drones at it while it's chasing the scout. And then I wait for the scout, like the thing to process and then I do the next one. Yeah, the structure of the game compels you to play in this way. And on Mission 14, which I also found incredibly painful. Yes, um, I am basically of the opinion that Mission 14 is one of the worst experiences I've had in a video game, like, ever. In my save files, the structure I used was, like, Mission 1, Save 1, Mission 1, Save 2. And each mission I would have about four checkpoints that I would have made with my save files. My save file for mission 14 goes up to save 18 <laughs> um, and it took me like four days to get through this mission because basically you need to attack this base that is surrounded by, it's like a literal 100 frigates, like gigantic ships, right? And if you try to fly through, you know, a gap, they all get alerted and all 100 ships attack you at once and they decimate you, right? So what you do is you get a scout and as we said before, you fly the scout near the sphere of 100 ships and then, you know, 10 of them aggro and you pull them back and you salvage them. Now, the mission is so large, right? Like the play space is so large that me moving my scout from my base area which was quite close to the sphere to the sphere takes about five minutes right like it's such a big distance to cover those frigates themselves move like four times slower than the scouts so you then need to wait like another like five to ten minutes for the frigates to get to your ship 
And you can't move your base too close because otherwise you trigger this cutscene that causes them all to aggro. So you have to like spend so much time just like sitting there waiting for your ship to go from point A to point B, then back to point A, then to capture them, then to spend a few minutes processing the eight ships you just captured and then do it again. And by the end of the mission, I had like 90 ships that I had stolen. Like the ship, I had so many ships it went off screen. Like the game's draw distance doesn't let you put them all on screen at once, right? You could probably just take 50 of the ships or half of the ships, not all of them, and you'd be fine. But given the difficulty of the previous missions, why would you purposefully not salvage them if there's a completely safe way to do so? Why would you purposefully deny yourself the resources when you could be screwing yourself over and making things more difficult later on? I I don't know. The... You, you you would be fine, but you'd feel stupid. Once again, you feel stupid for not taking advantage of the tools that the game has given you to give you the best chance at victory. So while I was playing this game, James, I actually came up with a really, really good idea for, well, in my opinion, of what the salvage drones could have been used for. And that is research. So the research in this game is incredibly linear and uninteresting. You acquire new technologies at a fairly linear rate, either by capturing enemy vessels or trading for it or just discovering it somehow. And what you do is you put your spend your resources on the research and then you can build the next ship. And while it does give you a nice sense of progression, there's not much to it. You just gain the available ability to research it, you research it, then you can build the next class of ship. What I really would have liked for them to do is tie the salvage drones to research instead of just giving you free ships. Uh, it could be something like you discover a new enemy vessel and then you have to use your salvage drones to salvage three of that new enemy vessel. You bring it back, disassemble it, and now you have the capability to build that vessel. Or it could be that you can use your salvage drones to get permanent upgrades for your vessels to make them stronger versions of what they were. This would still increase the cost efficiency. It would still be worth doing because you get more bang for your buck for resources, but it would take out the tedious, drawn-out, optimal strategy of slowly, slowly harvesting enemy ships at the end of the evil mission 14. It's weird. Like, I was so mad when I was doing that. Like, I was so upset that whole, like, three days. Like, I was at work, and I was like, gonna have to go home tonight and i'm gonna have to sit there for another like two hours like slowly salvaging ships until i can start my assault yay and then that was like three days of my life just dreading going back home like it was so tedious like i can't i can't begin the worst part about this actually is that you can't alt tab this game i through windows forced this game into window mode through command line and if you alt-tab in windowed mode, it still minimizes to tray and pauses the mission. So you can't even like, you can't even do anything. Like while you're just waiting, it's just like hours and hours of waiting. Like it might've been better to like emulate Windows XP so that you could speed up as well. And I think that would have added a lot to the experience <laughs> instead of just, just speed up the, the emulator. And the thing is, honest to God, that might be genuinely the best way to play this game because if you had a speed up function a lot of these problems would be massively minimized so that's all that's all really annoying i also want to say that not just the salvaging is tedious waiting too but the resource collection too so 
In this game, like many other real-time strategies, you have like, you know, resources that you need to mine to make ships with. Um, and you have these ships that go around vacuuming up space dust, and that's fine. Um, the thing is, these missions are generally so intense that I found it like close to impossible to simultaneously conduct battles while having ships, you know, automatically mine resources without wandering into the enemy and getting themselves killed. So basically, I found it more optimal just to do the mission and then once every enemy was dead, then start mining resources. And I dis maybe this is a problem with me, but I have this distinct memory of starting the resource collection and then going to dinner, like going out of the house, coming back and it'd still be going once I came back. Like the gardens of cadet, the, the cathedral level has so many resources, like a normal mission up until that point had like, 1800 resources gardens had 10,000 or something so it took like literal like two hours to mine it all and and you can't alt tab i can't use my computer during that time it was like nuts. yeah the difference uh between homeworld and your typical rts game starcraft warcraft age of empires is that resources tend to be in fixed locations and there tend to be several fixed locations that you can easily defend so you know you send out your forces to defend those guys my problem was with the automatic resource harvesting, it's very hard to get a clear idea of what your economic zones of control are. And uh, you can't even easily um, uh, send units to protect them uh, automatically. Uh, so if you hold control and alt, or it's control and shift or something. So if you, if you group select like a bunch of ships, and then you do control alt right click on a ship they will defend it oh i must have missed that yeah so if you put your ships in sphere formation around the resource collectors and set them to like aggressive so they attack anything nearby they kind of do the job but i still found it a bit hood or miss and losing like your resource collectors are expensive and if they die like the missions are so hard that you're like always on zero because you like need to keep making ships so if your resources die like when you're on zero and you can't make more workers to gather resources you're just fucked so i didn't want to risk like i never wanted to risk that so you just kind of end up and like that's so spread out and always there's a bunch of minerals like right in the enemy base that your dudes will go you know, automatically pathing to if you're not paying attention. Yeah, I'd say overall I found this less of a problem than you, James, because I was doing gathering throughout missions. But I, I do agree that it was frustrating when a mission was effectively ended. You had to just sit there and wait as your mm. gatherers just accumulated resources. So yeah, waiting is a big part of this game, and it's kind of frustrating because this was an aesthetic slash narrative choice yet again. They wanted to sell the fact that space was big. They wanted to sell the fact that units take a long time to move through space. And if this world, if the levels that they were constructing were a lot more compact, it wouldn't be home world. They wouldn't be able to sell this vision and aesthetic yep. that they had created. But the reality of playing the video game is that you have to spend a lot of your time waiting and without a speed up function, you're wasting your time. So is it worth that no. annoying gameplay tedium? For some people, maybe. For me, I have to admit, I also found it extremely annoying, James. 
Yeah, I was driving me nuts at points. Um, I think that the sp the speed up's weird. I think the battles are actually at a fine speed, and I think if you make it the speed up, you kind of take away from. I think what the game really should have done is just have the first three missions be quite slow and it's not so bad on the first three missions because you're trying to get used to the controls and learn the ships um and then i think some of the upgrades should have just been the ships are faster like and then you know because i think it is important like if the game makes you suffer through the slowness a bit but then gives you some catharsis and freedom you know to go a bit faster then you still like have that sense that it's big um but you you know the tedious doesn't last for the whole game is my feeling um but yeah um there are merits to the gameplay yeah so i mean we have been extremely negative so far and it really pains me to do so because the uniqueness of homeworld and the concept here is just so freaking cool and unique yeah but the truth of the matter is that the experience of playing this game today both because of the macro strategy uh, impelling you towards salvage craft and the general turtle pacing of the gameplay and how slow it is means that playing this video game involves hours and hours of waiting. Like, it's really, really annoying. And if you play this game today, regardless of what you read about how brilliant the atmosphere and everything, this is something you're going to have to reckon with with hours of your life slowly crawling through space. So I, I do have a lot good to say about Homeworld, but this is going to be the one major thing that impacts your gameplay experience. So it's better to talk about it first and tell you how we feel on a broad, from a broad perspective. Sounds like a perfect time for a music break, James. Uh, I guess so. Um, what music do you want to play, Patrick? <laughs> you sound exhausted yeah okay so uh for music the one i picked was two Rannick raiders and i was thinking i would pick an ambient piece to contrast with james's battle thing but the truth is this is my favorite song um it's played fairly early on in the mission i think where you first encounter the tidan and uh it's um i like it because it feels more like their culture is coming through yet again so this is tyrannic raiders
Alrighty, we're back, and uh, now we can actually talk about some of the good things before I was rudely interrupted again, as always. But um, I think that the first half of this game is quite fun in some ways. I actually think up until which the ghost ship mission, the mission design's great. Um, there's some really tough ones, and then it was about then when I discovered the salvaging, or like I knew about it, but that's really when I started using it. And from then on, the game became an unbearable slog, honestly. But before then, I think that this game has quite a lot of ship options for you to build. And I think that there is this really interesting part of the game where you don't know what ships are good for what, how to use your ships, like what formations to use, how aggressive or evasive to toggle the ship's AI. And that part of the game right at the start where you're experimenting with different ships while like trying to, you know, survive the missions which are really tough and require you to very rapidly improve your understanding of the game to learn what kinds of you know what what makes up a good strike force what combination of ships and tactics is going to let me get through the mission um and you know things i learned was it's a good idea to make uh clouds of very little but speedy jets that you leave on evasive and you can have them swarming around a bigger ship to distract it while your bigger but more vulnerable uh, ships you know deliver the killing blow um there was you know figuring out which of the corvettes were better um how to best spend your resources like do i need to build more harvesters to get more resources quickly yeah you've got to figure out what a good density of fighter ships yes. were i found that anything less than 20 ended up being too vulnerable so i often had yeah, 20 yeah. to 25 fighters at any one time um it's about figuring out the formations of your squads and what works best and even just what ships are completely useless and don't seem to do anything like the minefield layers which i barely got any use out of of all and realized that they were a trap in favor of just buying stronger ships but i mean this is all to say that i really enjoyed this part of the game where you're not sure what works where you have to try different combinations of ships and hope things work for the best and it's something that in general i really like experience in in video games i'm reminded a little bit of panzer general actually when we first did panzer general even though it has a very generous tutorial at the beginning very quickly you're kind of left on your own and the only way to really know how units are effective and how the fortification works and you know how much speed works and whether you should give trucks to your infantry and so on and so forth is by building them and trying them out and what will happen a lot of the time is that you will build something try it out and fail miserably and then have to redo it but that active learning as you're doing is a really fun thing to do and something that is only really present in older games versus newer ones like at one point i used my 15 fighters to attack a big ship and i was like hmm this seems like a good idea i have 15 versus one and then every single one of my 15 fighters died and i put barely a scratch on the big ship was that stupid yes but did i learn something from it i did and from that point onwards i knew that that matchup was unwinnable 
So I agree, James. I think that this part of the game is excellent, and it's one I enjoyed a lot before I caught on to the broader macro strategy that ended up winning me the game. Some of the mission design feels like it's explicitly designed to fuck with you. Um, the, the ghost ship is the one in particular that got me, because basically you finish like Cathedrals of Kadesh and you have this massive fleet finally because that mission was tough. You, you know, salvage some you know frigates you finally make some destroyers and you have this big fleet and you find this like abandoned wreckage kind of surrounded by some smaller ships so you're like oh whatever i'll send my gigantic fleet at it and then it turns out that that ship uh if you get too close to it with a frigate class or larger ship that ship will instantly get mind controlled and turn on you so you have to like because this is like a part of the game where you've kind of stopped using like scouts um, and interceptors and the smaller ships because they just don't stack up against the larger vessels, especially in that last mission. And now all of a sudden, like, it's like you have to use those tiny ships again. And, you know, you basically have to reload the save because otherwise you've just lost your whole fleet to this thing. <laughs> um, I thought that was fun. Uh, it was a bit of a... It was a bit of a prick mission, um, like the first time, but the second time, you know, easily got it. There are also the fun novelty missions, like the uh, like the asteroid mission, yep. where all of a sudden you warp in the middle of a minefield, and you have to destroy the asteroids as they fly towards your ship. And it's quite cool, if you rotate the camera around behind your mothership, you can see the ones which are going to impact it, so you know which ones to prioritize. So that was a lot of fun, and I think in general there's a good amount of uh, variety in, uh, in mission objectives as you progress throughout the game, with interesting quirks affecting what your baseline composition will be. Yeah, I, I would often get a lot of those and just put them in the wall formation, and when they were moving I'd put them in sphere. What did you think of the micro involved in this game, James? Do you think it was primarily about setting up your macro composition of ships, or do you think the individual control of the fleets and formations was important as well? Um, I felt like you actually had to be quite intentional about your combat movements, um, like especially with carriers and stuff. They are actually weaker at different angles, so I needed to move things above them. I found that frigates and larger have really slow turn rates so if you can get your ships behind them you can kind of like swing them like keep them behind them uh i guess circle strafe them you get the, the fighters do these like looping kind of movements but your bigger ships kind of can stay in one place so uh there was lots of like sending little ships uh, first to make them start turning around and as they've turned around the rest of my force arrives to shoot them in the back that kind of thing yeah my general strategy was to have the uh, strike craft lead the way and obviously there are situations where that's not always possible but because they're agile and maneuverable they would dodge a lot of enemy fire and then they would kind of draw the attention of these heavier ships which i would then swoop in on with my heavier ships uh, and kind of take them out while they were shooting at the mosquitoes that were bothering. Yeah, um, and then you have your like support frigates that. Um, it was the only the enemies one that had the healing beam, right? That thing was like insane. Yeah, you always have to destroy them. Oh, steal them first. Well, I wasn't capturing the ones in the very last battle near the emperor. I'll tell you that much. Uh, yeah, it was a bit. Honestly, it was a bit anticlimactic. It's like the Emperor's mothership is as big as your mothership, which is like the size of the moon. 
and it's like i attack move my like hundred dudes at him and then let go of the keyboard and the game ended so the other thing i wanted to mention was the pacing of the game in addition to a lot of variety in the missions i think that the pace at which you get new toys is excellent uh, pretty much every single mission you get a new kind of ship or a new ship variation to play with and usually these are actually quite powerful awesome variations of what you currently have like when you first get your missile destroyer it feels incredible uh, even when you're first upgrading to something above strikecraft it feels really good so i think the game while the research is kind of like linear and kind of uninteresting it does wonders that you get a new toy to play with pretty much every single mission and you get to test it and try it out that mission. Yeah, uh, I reckon near the end of the game, you know, there's like 20 ships and I used like four. So I, I, I just think that the first half of the game is like quite fun other than having to wait for gathering resources. But all of the missions are very intense. Um, and really push you to learn the ins and outs of the game to survive. Just the the second half of the game, I think, was like utterly miserable. And the like, thing is, James, you can't imagine a version of this game where they didn't have this continuous fleet buildup, uh, and it was more like a standard RTS where your resources and size of your fleet got reset each mission, instead of it being so focused around the narrative. Do you think that that's possible? Do you think that that would have been a better game? I think it would have resulted in a much less frustrating game, I think. I think most of the frustration and the tediousness and the fear, the stuff that led me to abuse the salvage drones was basically all to do with the continuous nature of the game and me fearing that I would run out of ships and resources and be unable to progress. Um, I think if that wasn't there, I would have absolutely chosen the more fun way to play, which was not like salvaging every single ship. Honestly, I can't even imagine getting through this game without using salvaging. And I'm sure you can. Like, I'm sure that it, you, the game gives you more than enough resources to literally never rely on it. And there are strategies so big brain that I didn't even think of them. But for me, salvaging is a core part of playing this game for most people. I don't, I don't think you can get through Gardens of Kadesh or Cathedral without salvaging. It's just, like, insane to me. The multi-beam frigates do so much damage to the, multi, to the mothership. You basically... And they take a while to kill, so if you salvage them, it takes, like, a second to neutralize them. As I said, I, I think they needed to tie salvage drones to research or introduce some kind of unit cap. I think part of the problem is that my conception of what this game would be is that by the time my fleet got home, it would be like a ragtag, survivalist, crippled fleet, you know, with, with no strength in it whatsoever, falling to pieces because of the long journey home. Instead, it was literally the opposite, with my fleet getting stronger and stronger with each passing battle, and the initial difficulty of the early missions kind of being the high point in terms of what was difficult instead of the climatic end. So, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like salvaging is fundamentally broken in this game. I'm not exactly what sh what could be done to fix it, but in its current state, I just, yeah, I just really dislike it. It also kind of doesn't help that the best parts of the story are the premise. So, like, later on, you're kind of suffering 
the less interesting building plus the salvage fatigue plus the less interesting story it all kind of like compounds to make while i do like broad strokes agree with a lot of what you're saying i do think that a lot of the actual moment to moment gameplay in those early missions and even organizing your forces initially before you can actually get in position to begin the salvaging process does present something unique and engaging and interesting uh so i don't want to paint this game as all bad it's just that there's a significant component of it that is but there's a lot of good rts stuff in this game it's just overshadowed by um by its macro problems are you ready to move on to final thoughts james yeah let's go for it i'll start um so I cannot in good faith recommend Homeworld. I could easily recommend the first third to first half of this game, but the absolute waste of time that a lot of the missions turn into, this game is doing some really awesome things, right? Like the atmosphere is incredible. The premise is amazing and resonant. Like I love this idea of this like species on the the brink of extinction like forced from their second homeworld um you know by this you know this invading force um and you know basically like scraping by the game is difficult and challenging in a really interesting way the music is brilliant um i like the way that the game controls for the most part i like the ship selection working out how you know, orders and formations work, you know, from a tactical point of view, there's a lot of solid stuff happening here. But I, I like, I cannot stress enough, Mission 14 is probably like the worst experience I've had with a video game full stop. It was like half a week of me like dreading coming home after work to play this game, like I hated it. And the last two missions I beat in like you know, 15 minutes. And probably you can argue that if I had just played the mission in a less boring way, maybe it's like, it, it would be my own fault. But the game really, really incentivizes you to do this. As someone who has played, you know, lots of other games, like it is painfully obvious that you, like, I feel like an idiot for not playing it that way. Um, I just cannot recommend this game. It was interesting but i the vast majority of my time especially near the end i was bored out of my mind and just hating every second of playing it which is a shame because it does some really cool things with the story and the the gameplay but you know maybe it is just better to try the remaster maybe that game cuts out a lot of this busy work uh, work is too strong of a word it's it's just sitting there watching paint dry for the most part and um, much to my chagrin and as much pain as it causes me to admit it, I broadly agree with a lot of what James is saying. I really wanted to love Homeworld. This game seems right up my alley. Like, the sci-fi story is fascinating. It's got great lore. It's got all these different civilizations. It's military sci-fi, one of my favorite pulp genres that I consume a lot of garbage in. So I'm no stranger to, to this kind of spacefaring fleet trying to get home thing. But the truth is the solid core of this experience is a dull macro strategy and a lot of empty space and waiting. In addition to that, the story, while interesting and it's got a bunch of professionals doing professional stuff 
it doesn't have much of an emotional core to it. And that's both in the lack of characterization and the lack of the culture of the Kadesh people strongly coming through. Where this game truly shines is its RTS battles with its different interesting compositions of ships, figuring that out and pitting them against one another and seeing the chaos of the battlefield as it unfolds having to adapt that strategy over and over until you come to a something that's functional and that works. But that high only lasts for the first third to the half of the game, and then the reality of salvaging overtakes everything. Now, is this a game that some people can enjoy in spite of their flaws? Absolutely. It's a very slow and at times very boring game. But I think that there are people who will be able to sit back calmly and let it wash over them. I think there are people who will be able to ignore the optimal strategy of salvaging and do something a little bit more in the middle that's not so heavily reliant on it and have a better experience. But for me, because I felt compelled to follow the salvaging strategy, it ended up being a boring game for a big portion of the time. And like I said, it pains me to admit that, but I need to be honest. And the truth is, a large time playing this game, it was boring. Now, that being said, I don't regret my time playing Homeworld. This was a unique and interesting way in a whole bunch of ways. I'm really glad we played it. But can I recommend it to most people, even RTS fans? And the answer is unfortunately no. And I think that even something like Dawn of War, even with its flawed actual moment-to-moment gameplay, its more compact structure and traditional RTS style means that more people will be able to pick that up and enjoy it, even if I didn't like that game very much either. I'd still very much put it below StarCraft 1, Red Alert 2, even Red Alert 1. It's it's systemic flaws stop it from going to greatness. I will say I'm very interested in Homeworld 2, though. Yeah, I wouldn't mind playing Homeworld. Homeworld 2, as we alluded to before, saw an engine change and a bunch of gameplay changes. So... I don't know if the macro strategy, like continuous thing has changed. I don't know what's changed. It's, I, I don't really know much about the game, but Homeworld 1 has intrigued me enough in the possibility of a sequel to see if a sequel can fix or improve upon some of these criticisms we've raised. Today. Even though Mission 14 made me hate my life, I don't hate the game as a whole, and I probably and I could recommend the first half of the game quite easily probably. Yeah, because the thing is, I don't hate this game. I don't resent this game. I was just ultimately um, disappointed with this game. It's funny. I remember we were talking about it briefly the other day, and you were telling me that um, that this story is exactly the same as Luna's. (laughs) Thank you so much, James, for giving me the opportunity to once again rant about Luna. Because I was being very well-behaved and didn't bring it up in the story section, but now you've given me a window (laughs) to talk about it. Okay. So for those who don't know, I'm not the biggest fan of Luna Silverstar's story because I think it implicitly endorses genocide. In Luna, the goddess Athena exiles a group of people who are known as the Vile Tribe to a wasteland where she condemns them to a slow death, including to the point where the people in the wasteland have to live their entire lives in cocoons, unable to emerge, they are so weak. This is what the goddess Athena does, who is the good person in this story, all right? She exiles a bunch of people, and she is alive 485 of these 500 years that the Vile Tribe is there. So she knowingly watches these people and their descendants die systemically. She's genociding them. In this game, in Homeworld, we see a far better telling of this story, which is that 
instead of playing on the side of the one committing genocide, you were the one whose people has been exiled to a faraway land. And when they try to leave this land, that planet gets destroyed. They justly fight for their right to live. And in the end, they are victorious because they are the heroes of this story. Instead, in Lunar Silver Star story, being the villains. And personally, I would far rather be on the side of those who are being genocided, you know, than be pro-genocide. And so I think that Homeworld is the far more natural telling of this kind of story. And Luna should once again be ashamed for itself. I mean, overall, I think that this was a good RTS to try, but um, it wasn't quite it. But that's okay, James. We can do RTSs for the next, you know, 20 or so episodes, and then we can maybe round it out with a few stealth games. Well, I actually think I will pick one at some point in the future because I want to go back and play Age of Mythology again. Um, I'd actually be keen to give Age of Mythology a try. If it's anything like Warcraft 3's uh, character-focused storytelling, I'm on board. So I think that about wraps us up. Thank you so much for joining us today and listening to us talk all about Homeworld. We are the Retrospectors podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur and my co-host is James Turlings. You can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. It has links to all of our episodes, all 102 of them, a bunch of articles that James and I have written, links to all of our social media stuff, including our Discord server. That's where we do all of our community interaction. Um, we take game recommendations and we just discuss games old and new. It's a very cozy place. And even if you don't have much to say, we would love if you would drop by and say hi. Um, and if you would like to support the show on a deeper level, we will put a link to our Buy Me A Coffee page in our show notes. So with that done, James, we've done an RTS Homeworld, my choice. What are we going to be doing for our next episode? Okay, well, I think for a long time we've wanted to do like a puzzle game or something like that. But the truth is there aren't a lot of older ones out there. Um, now that the show's been going for a few years, the needle of, you know, you know, because generally our cutoff is 15 years ago. Um, so, you know, originally when we started, um, we could do 2005 or earlier. Well, now time has passed. Imagine that. Um, and we can do some games that are a little bit older. So now this opens us up to doing Professor Layton and the Curious Village for the Nintendo DS, um, which I've had my eyes on for a while. It's always been like a little bit out of you know, a bit too new, but now it's like about that time where I feel like we can do it without feeling too bad about it. So um, they just announced a new game actually um, the other day and that caught my eye and I was like, oh, I wonder how old Curious Village is. Have you ever played any of the latent games, Patrick? So I haven't played any of these, but I've been excited to do one for a while. I'm actually um, very keen to give it a try. I do have to ask, so Curious Village is the first one in the series. I understand these are mostly puzzles strung together with a bare bones story is there any reason we're doing the first one is this genuinely the best one to do so my understanding was that people consider unwound future to be the best but part of that is that it's the end of the original trilogy so it's like a big culmination of the trilogy storyline um and i don't like if we do that first we just won't get you know that out of the game so i've also read a few places that the game tends to make like as the game the series goes on the puzzles get easier and i just want to do you know the harder ones and i think starting with the first one is something i just want to do you know personally anyway so um 
we're going to give the first one a go. I have seen, I've played one of these games before. I think it was Miracle Mask. And man, the best puzzles are the ones that are just complete bullshit. And like you have to look the answer up. I'm hoping that there's plenty of those here. It'll be a good source of humor for the episode. Um, but I did like enjoy that. And I did play um, Catriel's game a little on my phone for a while. Um, and I've, you know, enjoyed both of those games. So uh, really looking forward to this one. I think it'll be a lot of fun and something a bit different to what we're, you know, normally doing. Well, I'm excited to try it out um, and we'll see you in three weeks for Professor Layton. See you then. Bye.